Welcome to Gold and Great, telling Asian American stories from the Gold Rush to the Gold Open. It's been a few weeks since our last episode. Thank you for your patience. We've really been taking that time to think about and reevaluate our role, as we've seen ourselves as a, a PETA entertainment nonprofit. And with that delineation, with that definition, it still made us really reckon with how we can better address anti-blackness in our community, um, especially as our nation continues um, to be embroiled in in protests and violence. Um, We thank you for your patience and we'll be moving back to our regular episode schedule. But I I don't know about you, but I continue to think about the murder of George Floyd uh, and to this this recording date still looking for justice for the murder of Breonna Taylor. And the fact that the method of his killing, that a cop had to have his knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. There had to be something there where the cop had to see George as someone who was less than human to do something that despicable for that long. Where we fit into this conversation is really thinking always about what what is the representation, uh, right, of of people of color, of of Asian and Black voices in art and media. And if you look at the history of entertainment, which, at least in the the movie and TV industry, is not super long, uh, you see that all, all characters of color, voices of color, have typically, for most of Hollywood history, have really been denigrated in their portrayals. Uh, from minstrel shows to blackface to yellowface to subservient roles, what is lacking and what we still need so much more of is depictions of black and Asian and characters of color that fully express their humanity. Don't diminish it. And that brings us to Joe Ide. Joe is a critically acclaimed Japanese-American author and the creator of a major crime fiction series. IQ follows Isaiah Kintabe, a black private eye from Long Beach who takes the cases that the cops in the neighborhood won't or can't touch. His first novel, IQ, won the Anthony McCavity and Seamus Awards. High Five is the fourth novel in the series and is out now. And fun fact, the books are currently being adapted as a TV series by executive producer Snoop Dogg. So there you go. Uh, Joe grew up in South Central LA in the 60s and 70s and combines his experience of growing up in a black neighborhood with his love of Sherlock Holmes. Joe grew up feeling like he didn't belong anywhere. He wasn't Japanese enough to satisfy his old world family, but also stood out being a poor Japanese kid in South Central. We go back with Joe to explore how the experience of being an outsider shaped his ability to listen, to empathize, 
and to understand the characters that he now creates. Apologies in advance, we had some audio issues while recording, so you'll notice some sound quality changes during the episode. Uh, but now, let's go back where we came from with author Joe Ide. I think hearing a lot about your story made me resonate with that idea of how the specific really can be universal. Um, uh-huh. Because I feel like on its front, um, and hearing that you know you as a born with Japanese-American descent and growing up in South Central um, with obviously a primarily black neighborhood um, and trying to navigate that space of not necessarily feeling black or Japanese or white when being surrounded by, you know, such a diverse group of people. Um, While that is very specific uh, in reading and hearing about that for me, like I I'm from the Bay area, obviously very different um, zone and place and time. But for me, um, growing up in a very diverse community, um, I went to a uh, to schools that were primarily black and brown, um, where white folk was always the, the minority. And so right. to come from that space into um, higher education and into the workplace and being surrounded with a lot more with a lot more white people, honestly, than than I had grown up with, um, that was a very unusual experience for me and learning to navigate and understand more of my cultural identity. So that just really resonated with me. When I was um, going from, I, I went, I went from middle school to a, a high school called Jefferson mm-hmm. and it was almost all black. And um, I was getting into serious trouble <laughs> and my parents somehow got me transferred to LA high, which is on the West side of Los Angeles, which at the time was largely white. And um, uh, and then, then there were Asians. They were the second largest group. And, they, you know, just, there were black students, but you hardly ever saw them. And um, I was a foreigner at that school. Uh, I didn't make a friend for a year. Mm. Um, and when I did, uh, I made some Japanese friends. And I was always on, on the edges. You know, I was in the group, but I wasn't in the group. And my mannerisms and my speech were all South Central. So it took a while for both the group and for me to sort of adapt and even to speak like, like the other kids and not have an attitude on all the time because they were middle-class kids. <laughs> so, yeah. Was there a, a specific uh, story or example that still kind of sits with you of like trying to connect and, and be friends with these other Japanese kids that were obviously very different than you in terms of background and experience? I had one, one kid in my, um, I think it was ceramics. And he was a Japanese kid. He was the clumsiest kid I'd ever seen. He'd take a lump of clay and it would end up a lump of clay. And I helped him. Because you had, you, you had to make a semblance of a, of a pot. <laughs> <laughs> that I, I would hope that'd be the goal. <laughs> anyway, I helped him, and uh, his name was Calvin, and we got to talking, and he was part of a group. So um, I sort of edged in with him. You know, I was seen with him at lunch, and I would sort of sit on the outskirts of the group, you know, next to Calvin. And eventually, I was, I was part of the group, um, but not. You know, everybody lived around there. Um, I had to take the bus back to South Central. Um, so I was, you know, I was there, but I wasn't. 
Yeah, and I know that there were some things you did to, to take solace in that kind of outsider existence, and Sherlock Holmes was a big part of that. Um, what, mm-hmm. what was it that really stuck out to you? I know that his intelligence is always just a big asset to the character. Um, I don't right. know, are there other parts of reading those stories that helped you to escape? Yeah. What struck me about Sherlock is that he could control his world with just his brain. Now, I'm a small kid in a big neighborhood. So that idea that I could actually, you know, confront the world, deal with the world, handle the world with just my brain, as opposed to my size and my ethnicity, was a very appealing idea. And it really stuck with me. I read those, you know, there's how many stories there are, 50 some. I read them all more than once before I hit high school. Uh, and that, just that the idea that I could have power uh, with just my brain was, was really life-changing for me. And I think something that comes through from reading about your, your life and from reading High Five as well is just the immense empathy that you bring to your writing. Do you think that was something that came more naturally to you? Was that influenced by your childhood and like that, that sense of often being and feeling like an outsider? It was. I was never in the middle of things. And it made me a watcher and a listener. And I would always try to puzzle out why people were doing what they were doing. It was a giant mystery to me. Why is he hitting that other kid? <laughs> you know, um, why do those kids hate other kids? You know, why do these people, some of these people like me and some of them don't. I'm constantly on the outside uh, asking questions. And that really helped me over the years because I was always asking those questions. Why do people do what they do? Mm. And it translated into my books in terms of, I wanted to explain why all the characters were doing what they, they were doing. And it was, um, it's probably the most interesting part of writing for me, not the plot, but the characters themselves. I'm thinking about where they came from um, and how they would behave as a result of it. Uh, that's, that connection fascinates me. It was such a big aspect of my own, my own growing up. Yeah, it was definitely something I noticed in, in reading High Five and that oftentimes there were these, I don't want to say extra, but these, these portraits that would often hang out in different chapters that didn't necessarily, it's not that they, like, obviously every page is there for a reason, but it always seemed like there was extra effort on your part to make sure that every character, like, had their day in the sun. Um, and yeah, no, it's really... A large, a large part of it is me trying to understand the character. Mm-hmm. When I have the outline of a character, and I want to know why he's doing what he's doing, because in many of the, the books in my genre, characters just show up, and you never really understand. I mean, the main character, Isaiah... Um, a lot of the PIs and novels, you don't know how they got all these skills. And if they're that smart, why aren't they working for NASA? You know, I, these questions occurred to me while I, was writing, while I was writing my own Isaiah. And I wanted to understand myself how someone could get to his place, could be that smart and still be in the hood and, you know, helping the people around him. And so that, it just interests me how people got the way they got to be. And, and so I write a lot of backstory. 
Yeah, and I think a big part of that too was just using your writing to make the world feel very lived in and to make people really dig into what the reality of East Long Beach can be like. Um, going back to South Central for a second, though, I was just curious about what you've been told about your family history and how the E-Days ended up in South Central. My grandparents had a very successful hardware store in Little Tokyo. Um, this is before the war. They had two, in fact. And then came internment, and uh, they, were, they were in the camps. And when they got out, uh, and my parents were there, too, when they got out, um, the, the um, hardware stores were effectively gone, taken away from them. Hmm. And they had lived in South Central uh, before the war, and they had to kick people out of their house to get their house back. Um, so their, uh, my grandmother, grandfather, uh, my own family um, shared this house. And so there were three generations of E-Days under the same roof. My grandparents um, came over from, my grandfather came over from Japan because there was famine. And he knew people here. He landed in Vancouver, followed the crops down to LA, and um, eventually started a hardware store in Little Tokyo. His wife, my grandmother, was a mail-order bride. They had these great, big, thick books, like school albums with tiny little sepia pictures and a little description of, you know, the woman, whoever she was. And he just picked one. She came over on a freighter. The day after she got here, they got married. Just like that. <laughs> I can't imagine. But, you know, they were together for a hundred years. So I, turned out better than a lot. Um, they moved to the, uh, they were in the South Central area because it was close to little Tokyo. And as um, the decades went on in the 60s, the Japanese white community started to move out to the suburbs and the area sort of became black around them. They couldn't afford to move, where they certainly would have. Um, my family lived with them because we were just getting by and my dad was sick. My mother was taking in graduate theses to type. That was sort of our income. And, um, you know, me and my brothers, we adapted to the neighborhood. Our friends were black, so we co-opted their speech style, musical tastes, all of that stuff. Um, my parents aspired to get out of the hood, be Brady Bunch mainstream. My grandparents, who were very old world, spoke almost no English. Grandmother had a koi pond. My grandfather collected samurai swords. So there was always this sort of cultural generational tension within the household. And we were pretty dysfunctional as a family. But that's how we, uh, that's how we got there. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I'm just hearing about your grandparents and being very old world and like literally with the mail order bride for your grandma um, yeah. and with the what, the samurai swords? And I think I read somewhere that like your, uh, was your grandma into calligraphy or something? She was a great calligraphist. She played the koto. She wore beautiful silk kimonos around the house. Oh, wow. I mean, they were Japanese. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just curious about what those interactions were like. You, you mentioned this, this tension and I'm just wondering if you have maybe a story that sticks out to you of your relationship with your grandparents, but also what even the relationship between your grandparents and your parents looked like? 
um, there was no relationship between me and my grandparents. From our point of view, me and my brothers, uh -huh. they were these foreigners who lived in the house. You know, we hardly ever spoke. They didn't understand us. We didn't understand them. Actually, they loathed us. I mean, they were, they were pretty racist people to begin with. Uh -huh. And that we had adopted to the neighborhood was sort of an insult, an affront. And then we had no respect for, for what was important to them. We didn't know. My grandfather kept his uh, samurai swords in his long drawer, you know, wrapped up in silk, very elaborate. And collectors used to come over to the house, our raggedy little house, to look at them. Everything was very ceremonial. Mm. You know, um, the way you drew out the sword and you put a silk handkerchief in your mouth so you wouldn't breathe on it. Little silk pillows in your hand so you wouldn't handle it. Um, one day I was home and I took one of the swords out. I'm 11 years old. I just whipped it out of the scabbard. You're not supposed to do that. Just like that. And I'm jumping around playing pirate. Okay. Swinging this 700 year old national treasure around. And there was this, um, this wooden lamp, this stand up lamp. And I cut it in half. And um, I'm stupid. So I'm worried about the lamp. And my grandfather comes in. Now he's about my size. Small man, I'm 11. And I remember he was purple, the race, just purple. And he grabbed me by my shirt front and he threw me under the screen door so hard, my head came out of the other side like a hunting trophy. Wow. So there were a lot of there were a lot of incidents like that. And so we were we were just miles apart. Um, my parents were dutiful to my grandparents. You know, neither my parents or um, my grandparents had any sense of parenting, you know, in the current sense. Uh, everything was pretty much duty. So, um, yeah, they all, my parents and my, my grandparents were pretty alien to us. So were your parents considered Nisei since they were like... My parents were Nisei. So do you happen to know anything about what it was like for them and that like transitional, I think you had mentioned, were your grandparents and your dad in internment? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, they were in um, Tamachi and they would hardly ever talk about it. They didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. My parents didn't want to talk about it because they came away from it not so much angry as they were humiliated. You know, they really felt that they were Americans. And to be treated like they, they, they were just incredibly ashamed. So it was a subject we didn't really, didn't really talk about. Approach, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in terms of relationships between parents and grandparents, and my parents and us, they were dutiful, you know, aloof, uncommunicative. It was the only world I knew seemed okay to me. Yeah. And, um... You know, growing up with your siblings, obviously, South Central was a very different world for y'all compared to your grandparents first moving in. Your mm -hmm. grandparents, was it just because of their profession and owning the hardware store that they couldn't afford to move like other, other folks? Or what happened there? Well, my grandfather established two hardware stores in Little Tokyo before the war. And there are little plaques on the, on the street to commemorate where his stores were. Anyway, the war came and he lost both. And um, 
but he was still in proximity to Little Tokyo. And he worked for a, this social organization called the um, Fukuoka Kenjin Kai, which was a social group, all the people from Fukuoka. You know, and they had picnics and parades and all those kinds of things. He had some, some directorship kind of role over that. That's mostly what he did. My grandmother worked as a seamstress. But they could, they could they just never afford to move to the suburbs. They certainly would have. Uh, those those social groups weren't the type of, uh, in terms of like I don't know, like financial assistance or anything. It was more of a um, cultural role in the community, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there were these regional organizations, and they were largely social. You know, there would be this huge picnic in Elysian Park, and everybody would bring their tatami mats. And there would be a stage and dance, Japanese dancing and Japanese line dancing, and um, everybody would bring their bento boxes. That was sort of the big event of the year. And then they participated in the Niseway Parade, which at the time was a big deal. Um, you know, it, it filled First Street, it went on and on. It's uh, hardly anything now, but um, it, was, um, it was a huge event in their lives. Yeah, and so I'm just curious about what Japanese culture and how that fit in with, with your childhood. Um, I, I heard some interesting stories um, in prepping for this and just hearing about this story where your brother, I think he bought, he bought some Boy Scout badges. Um, and I know that there was something with you and uh, not, not feeling a Japanese pottery class. So I'm just wondering if there was a specific time uh, or I don't know, some particular aspect of, of culture that you remember from childhood that, I don't know, felt like, oh, like this is part of me since so many other elements felt so foreign, um, even literally with you and your relationship with your grandparents. Mm -hmm. I never, I never felt Japanese. I, mean, I wasn't aware of what that even meant. It wasn't a concept that was in my head. I grew up blind to ethnicity and I assess people in, and still do today on the basis of the individual. Do I like you? Do you have something interesting to say? Can we talk? But if I meet someone from of Asian origin, it doesn't mean anything to me. You know, I would treat them the same, see them the same, no matter what ethnicity they were. I had no Asian, no Japanese consciousness. And to this day, I know others see me as a Japanese American, that's fine. I'm not embarrassed about it. But it's not the way I see the world or see myself. I identify primarily with my work. Um, you ask me what I am, and I wouldn't say I'm a Japanese American writer. I'm a writer. How do you feel um, growing up and, you know, having friends in the hood? Like, did you feel like you, you were able to be, you know, treated the same way as everyone else? Like, growing up in a primarily black neighborhood, um, were there certain ways that you felt different? I'm sure there were. Um, but was, what was that like? Well... Uh, poverty leveled everything. Yeah. Um, you know, we were poor like everybody else. So there wasn't any have, have nots. And um, I was treated fine. I was never picked on because of 
I, being Japanese, I was picked on because I was small from time to time. Um, but I did feel like an outsider pretty much everywhere. In my family, of course, I had black friends, but I had this sense, and I couldn't articulate it then, but I had this sense that I didn't fit there really. You know, I was sort of on the edges. And I wasn't black and I wasn't white. And so I went through life feeling pretty much like a misfit. Strange sense that I wasn't, I, I wasn't and would never be in the mix. And I think that experience over time made me a watcher and a listener. And that's, I think that's put me in good stead as a writer. Yeah, I think that really speaks to the, um, the empathy that I mentioned that I, is really evident throughout your work, um, as well as your ability to draw really specific and detailed characters. I was just wondering, since there's so much specificity and attention to detail in your work, if there, um, I don't know, if there's, if there's one friend or, or person specifically from your childhood that really just jumps out to you that maybe influenced the way that you see things, that you've been able to observe a friend that just really jumps out to you years later? Hmm. I can't say that there is, except my older brother. Only because I worshiped him. Um, what was that? He was the coolest guy. He was the coolest guy ever. He had the hair, he had clothes. He was really good looking. The girls totally liked him. So, I, you know, I was, that was my guy, but I, I can't say I was influenced by anybody in particular because I was never really close to anybody. Even my friends were, I mean, they were school friends. Um, and so it was really a lot of imagining as to why people were doing what they were doing. This was an unending curiosity for me because I wasn't actually there interacting. And so I had to guess as to people's motivations right. and um, the origins of their behavior. And um, I was constantly just consternated why, why people would say things that just aren't true or were stupid or, or would fight over nothing. And my mind was constantly churning them. And I walk down the hall, that's what I'm thinking. I see a teacher, I know he's an asshole, I wonder why he's an asshole. The kids in class, you know, there's a great variety of kids. Um, but I'm not thinking about how I make friends with them. I'm thinking about what the hell they are like, why they behave so differently from me. These were just things that just stayed with me, no matter where I was, no matter what context. And looking at details was a way of life almost. When do you think those those observational details, skills, those memories, when did they start translating into to writing for you? I was talking to somebody else the other day who was interviewing me and I, she said, well, you know, tell me about, you know, what inspired you? My story is not inspiring. I didn't write anything, <laughs> I didn't write anything except for school and work um, until I was in my uh, late 30s, early 40s, nothing. And then I, um, I tried to be a screenwriter. Eventually I got work and I wrote screenplays, but I was driven purely by avarice and um, 
you know, wanting to be in the business. And I wrote, producers liked me. I worked a lot. I worked for most of the majors. I did rewrites and assignments and all that kind of stuff, but nothing ever got made. And as a screenwriter, that's how you keep score. You'd be making money, but still, you're not getting anything made. Eventually, producers start to see you as some kind of a jinx. <laughs> you know, I'm getting older, you know. And uh, one after the other, the projects would fall out for one Hollywood reason or another. And I just burned out. You know, I'd work on something for months and months, you know, only to have the head of the studio be fired or something like it. I could not do it anymore. It's too and, much development, how? Uh, it was nothing but. <laughs> it was nothing but. So you work all this time, and then it ends up that, you know, seven people read it. And now it's in a data vault somewhere. So I quit. Nobody noticed. I quit. I moped around for a long time. And um, mortgage, so I, I, you know, my only marketable skill was writing. That was the only thing I knew how to do. So I decided to write a novel. And it was the best decision I ever made. I thought that being a professional writer up to that point, you know, writing long for narrative, narrative prose would be, you know, I could do that. I couldn't. I was lousy. It was terrible. My prose was awful. I made every single mistake a rookie writer would make. And it took me a year, a year to write just clear, decent prose. And then in the following two years, when I was working on IQ, I got myself some style, some clarity. I got a little smoother. Um, but, I mean, it's like practice. I'm writing hundreds of thousands of words and throwing out most of them. You know, you get better at it. So, at the end of the year, <laughs> at the end of the, um, when I finished the book, you know, I thought I was a pretty good writer. Um, I'm curious about, I want to hear more about that initial writing process for IQ, that first book. I'm just curious about how the other careers, you know, eventually led you to that path of getting from screenwriting and finally to where you are now as an amazing mystery writer. I just counted a bunch of different careers, you know, correct me if any of these are wrong. I, I saw like business consultant, teacher, lecturer, apartment manager, you led like an NGO, you worked for like <laughs> entrepreneurs. So like, how, how did all these different career transitions happen and how did you decide to move into like whatever came next? Sean LeCarré described his early career as a, as a bunch of encounters and escapes. Hmm. And that was me. I took whatever was in front of me, whatever I could get. If it was um, managing apartment buildings, fine, I'll manage apartment buildings. I didn't know how to do it. Um, but I... But you had to figure it out? It was a really, it was a really good interview. <laughs> and this was a point, you know, I didn't really check, you know, your resume. Yeah. And um, I was not above, you know, writing a resume specifically for a job. If they call my references, they were calling my friends. So uh, it lasted probably a year on most jobs. Then I'd be restless, I'd be bored, I'd go look for something else, write a resume and move on. Um, never happy. That kind of survival never, mentality. Never, ever happy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my first job was as a school teacher. I had a graduate degree in education. Why? I don't really know. All my friends were in the program. <laughs> and uh, I taught grades through four through six in one of those big open area classrooms. 
I'm there about a week, and I realize I really don't like children. I mean, <laughs> they're noisy, and they're fussy, and they keep asking me questions like I know something. And I was, I was like, I was like the whole, my whole, most of my working life was exactly like that. And um, I always had this romantic notion of writing. And um, I had a friend who was an agent. So I'd write a screenplay, drop it off at his office. He would send it back with a little note that said, this is terrible. This is boring. Nobody's going to watch this. <laughs> we love the honesty. <laughs> but, you know, to my credit, I didn't give up. I wrote exactly one dozen bad screenplays. The 13th one was pretty good. And he optioned it to Touchstone. And then I started working. I learned the craft of screenwriting, but I, I never really liked it. It's a very, it's, it was all about desperation, really. Hmm. Where's my next job? I have to go uh, pitch something. I have to go meet this producer. It was, it was like that. It was a grind. And whatever love I had of writing, I lost it all then. And I was, I was forced into writing a novel. You know, I quit screenwriting, and there was really nothing else for me to do. So writing, it was a lot about fear, not inspiration. You know, I, I was a lover of Sherlock Holmes. It was the way I grew up in South Central. So when it came time to write that book, those two things came together almost by themselves. And Sherlock in the Hood was born. It was my only idea. That was it. I wasn't choosing from a list. <laughs> so, Just we looked so up the list of one and we're like, all right, well, there we go. <laughs> I am curious, though, just because obviously growing up in South Central, there's a lot of the inspiration right there for, for IQ. But I'm just curious if there's anything from, you know, those other other careers that, you know, even though it wasn't your final your final calling, if there have been um, mm -hmm. some takeaways or lessons from those careers that you've taken into into writing now. It's the same dynamic. I mean, at some places I was the boss. But I was never, I didn't really want to be the boss. But it was better than, you know, working for somebody. And again, I'm watching people. Um, there was one NGO I worked for where I was supervising these two halfway houses. I don't know anything about halfway houses. But I liked spending time there because the people there were a lot of like, a lot from my neighborhood. And so it was watching them and the people who worked there. It was always watching. Um, I worked as a business consultant. Can you imagine? I know squat about business. <laughs> so I can't really think of anything specific. It was just that mindset. I'm accumulating stories and backgrounds and uh, details as I go. I don't know I'm accumulating. I think creativity is everything that's ever happened to you in your life focused on a single problem. So it's like the sun through a magnifying glass. You know, the sun is your life. And it gets focused on something until it makes a flame. And so when I have a writing problem, that's what's coming to bear. Everything that's ever happened to me in my life. Again, I'm not choosing from a list. So if you can call it inspiration, there it is. I'm curious just because you said in an interview that for the IQ novels, you're not necessarily, um, I forget the exact words you used, 
you don't write work that people need to read, but that people enjoy reading is what paraphrasing from what you said. And so even though that's the case, there's still a lot of social issues and big themes that are really relevant and contemporary in your work. Obviously with High Five, we have like a group of white nationalists that are involved with this gang. Since your setting is East Long Beach, there's a lot of really diverse characters. And so even though, you know, your words that it's not like a social issue book, there's still a lot of grappling with these themes. And I'm wondering if that comes just more naturally to you in your writing and as you're thinking about what's going to be the next step of these characters' journey, or if it's something intentional for you and how do you integrate that with the characters' emotional journeys from book to book? Again, I don't have an inspirational answer. If I write something thematic, it's not intentionally. I write about the white nationalists and I'm not thinking about condemning or even exploring white nationalism. I'm writing the way I write. And if when I'm done, that as a theme, some sort of recurring set of ideas, I'm glad. But people tell me what my books are about. Because I don't think of them that way. I don't think thematically. One of the things IQ does let me do, though, is, is express my own feelings through the characters. And if I see a, a nexus between my view and a particular character, I'll certainly go there. But thematically, it's just not intentional. I do see uh, a lot of... Isaiah's characteristics, not just in Sherlock, but, but in you as well. And so I'm just wondering, from your perspective, of what you put in your characters that you relate to personally in your book. But I'm just wondering if there's a specific character that you've kind of latched onto as, I guess, a composite in certain ways, if not completely. Well, the um, Isaiah came out the way it came out. That was intentional. I wanted to write somebody decent and fair and who cared about his community and didn't find justice at the end of a gun. That was intentional. And it remains something very important as I write him to remember those things and not to let him lapse into somebody else. And I know the other sort of core characters intimately now. And I know what they're going to do two years from now, three years from now. I know where they're going to be in their lives. And, you know, by writing them, I'm getting to know them as I write them. And so, you know, four books, whatever it is, I know them pretty well. It's not, um, I, don't, I don't know what you call them, but I'm eager to get their lives and thinking on paper to make them alive for the audience, but for me too. <laughs> you know, I want to see what happens to them. I want to see how they deal with situations. I try to throw the most extreme situations at them and see how they react. And it's exciting to find out, because I don't know. Yeah, and what I, what I do notice from your work is, I don't know, there is a very like cinematic quality in not just the way that you describe things, but even from, from book to book of giving each character an arc. It feels very much like consuming a long form like episode of TV and just a really entertaining narrative. I don't know. I, I'm just curious about uh, you and your relationship with the audience um, because, you know, we get to 
grow up and, and see these characters change and develop. And just wondering what you think about um, that audience response and what you hope that number one takeaway is for a reader. Hmm. There's something that you always are hoping for. If it's an emotional response, if it's just like... <laughs> well, I do key on an emotion. I try to do everything. Because that's what audiences respond to. The whole thing about a roller coaster, they're responding to the emotion that the scene generates. I'm very conscious of that. So anytime I write a scene or a piece of dialogue, I'm thinking about how does this make the reader feel? Well, first of all, how does it make me feel? You know, I'm thinking about how to generate that feeling that, that I can see in my head, how to generate it and put it on the page. Um, and how I want the audience to respond. Um, that's always key in my head. I mean, you see in these action scenes where, in, in the movies and in books, where it turns into a bunch of people just running around. And I try and key in on the emotional stakes for every character. Everybody is bringing some kind of emotional stakes into this confrontation and those emotional stakes are important to them. And I think it generates a lot more interest if you know why a character is doing what they're doing. You know, how do they get to this brink where they're gonna do such extreme things? That's my personal interest. I think it's an audience, an audience's interest. I mean, other writers do it differently and successfully. That's how I think. Um, the emotion part is really, really important. If it doesn't, then it's expository. Details versus the feeling that gets evoked when, you know, reading the details, there's a big difference. I mean, you know, readers want to learn something. They want to feel like they're learning something. They're reading about something they don't know. And so bringing in details not only gives the piece credibility, but it informs the reader. It's another running objective through a book, mm -hmm. like character arcs, like story beats. They're all sort of running parallel. What would you like to see now from the crime and mystery genre that you haven't seen yet? I'd like crime writing to be more diverse, obviously. I would like, I would like people, to, authors to stop writing the same book over and over again. I like some authors to stop phoning it in. Part of that is economic. There are, there are writers who have a built-in audience who are looking for a specific experience. And consequently, they have hundreds of thousands of readers who buy their books automatically. I, I would, you know, I buy a book, $26 book from one of these guys, you know, give me something new. And of course, the diversity thing. I'll tell you something about publishing. It's one of the widest industries ever. I go to a big convention, thousands of people. You have to go look for a black face. You have to go look for a brown face. They know it. They're working on it. But as for authors, they don't care what the ethnicity is. They really don't care. What they're looking for is a book that will sell. And they don't care who writes it. They don't care if you're from Jupiter. And 
there is lack of opportunity in the publishing industry, which they're doing something about. The face of Little Brown has changed markedly since I've been there. In terms of discriminating against black authors or authors of color, never seen it. You write a good book, you write a book they think they can sell. Here you go, I'll write you a check. They're a business. I think they're pushing diversity just because it's the right thing to do. And it will, in the end, help their business. But in terms of buying books, write a book they can sell. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that's what we're starting to see the past couple of years of seeing diversity sell. But Joe, I'm just wondering mm -hmm. for you, just what have you learned when it, when it comes to learning from and listening to people with very different experiences than you? I think it's given me more depth to understand or at least try to understand how different people make their way through their lives with a certain different set of values and perceptions and cultural experiences. That has been a real boon to me, especially my growing up. I mean, you grow up in the hood and you grow up black. It is an entirely different way of seeing the world. And that has benefited me in itself, but it gave me the motivation to try to understand those things for other people. But, you know, my experience in the hood was invaluable. To be honest, I never thought it would be useful. <laughs> you know, I, I was never embarrassed about it, but to have it um, come back in this way and to, to provide me with such a, a rich background to, to write about I'm forever in its debt. Definitely, and I think we appreciate you being able to bring some of those experiences to a mainstream audience. So thank you for, for your empathy and for that, all of that learning and listening and observing um, that led to giving us Isaiah. High Five is out now. IQ Five is coming out soon. Um, but thanks, Joe, for coming on today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And that is going to do it for us today. High Five and the rest of the IQ series are available wherever you get your books. Do you have a story in your circle of friends or community that explores how family, cultural, and personal histories are shaping artistry and identity? How are you going back where you came from? You can send questions, comments, and episode ideas our way to goldandgreat at collaboration.org. Collaboration spelled with a K. This episode of Golden Great was mixed and edited by Francis David Bustos. Our associate producer is Michelle Abiera. Our supervising producer is Long Bo. And our executive producer is Josh Co. Our beautiful theme song was composed by Robert Guh, and you can learn more about Bobby's work at bobbygemusic.com. I'm Josh Co, and we'll see you soon with more stories of the Golden Great. Stay safe out there. <laughs>